The Sarah Lawrence Theater Program works, learns, and lives on the land of the Lenape, Munsee, and Wappinger peoples. We pay respect to the ancestors past, present, and future. The Performance Lab podcast is invested in the sharing of knowledge and cultivation of curiosity between makers. We invite guest artists to lead a workshop with the MFA candidates of Sarah Lawrence College. After which, we interview them. We ask questions tailored to their individual practice, delving deeper into the how and the why of creation. Inspiration is all around us. But how do we hone in on the subjects that drive us? They share with us their tips, tricks, and sources of inspiration. Reflect on past performances and projects and keep us up to date on what is next stay tuned for the performance lab podcast hi uh, i'm nikki miller i'm a second year graduate student in the theater department at sarah lawrence college and i am frank barrett i'm a first year mfa student in the theater department at sarah lawrence college and we are here today with ethan philbrick ethan is a cellist, artist, and writer. His book, Group, Works, Art, Politics, and Collective Ambivalence was recently published by Fordham University Press just this past April, 2023. Um, they are an interdisciplinary artist. There's an incredible list of projects uh, on their website, ethanfilbrook.com, that people can check out if they wanna learn more about those. And he holds a PhD in performance studies from New York University, um, where he has also taught as well as Pratt Institute and Muhlenberg College. So welcome, Ethan. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Um, so today we're going to talk a little bit about um, this book that you just put out. Uh, and so to just ground us in that, um, in reviewing the book for Bomb Magazine, Jack Halberstrom writes, there are, of course, many accounts in art history of collectivities of artists, Fluxus, General Idea, Guerrilla Girls, but Philbrick focuses on off-center versions of the art group and in queer and feminist experiments with co collectivity that often fail to cohere. Assembly can be hopeful. It can unleash new forms of power. It can create a new sense of being, but it can also exclude, block, deny, rule, silence, corrupt, and destroy. By finding moments of unconventional grouping, the huddle, Simone Forti, which we're gonna talk about, the improvised and ephemeral collective, Samuel R. Delaney, the Feminist Collective, Borden, and the musical ensemble, Eastman, Philbrick takes the failure to cohere as a marker for the dissonant ensembles that our moment requires, and that we can find in odd groupings of dancers, dreamers, slackers, and reluctant revolutionaries. So good. Thank you, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> so um, before we get into all of the nitty gritty of that, which we're really excited to do, Ethan, um, We'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about yourself and these different aspects of your of your identity and of your work, being a cellist, an artist, and a writer. So um, I'd love to know how each of these things come into your practice and how they've also come to come together or not um, in relationship to all of this research we were just introducing. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I... So yeah, my like, you know, in terms of my personal history, I like started out like very young age, very invested in music making, really drawn to playing instruments as like a little baby. And, um, and uh, yeah, so I think some very early experiences of like ecstatic, 
ensemblic relations, you know, mm-hmm. like a little child playing music with other people. Um, so maybe some like, you know, there are some like really early experiences of like group formation as kind of limit experience, ecstatic relationality type things of like, um, you know, playing cello with other kids or playing, I played the flute when I was really young. I played the flute, I played piano. You know, I was just like really invested in sort of instrumental playing as this like way of being with other people outside of normative modes or something from like a really young age. So there is maybe some biographical sort of uh, lines from sort of my practice as a cellist to like writing a book about groups. Um, And then, yeah, so I, I, but then I think maybe to try to weave it into my biography, like I, you know, had all these like beautiful experiences as a kid playing music with other people, but then also had a real like political falling out with a lot of the classical music worlds that I was trained inside of. And so as like a 18 year old really stopped playing cello, stopped showing up in classical music worlds, dropped out of conservatory, decided to like transfer to a liberal arts college and got in more into performance world. And then um, in a kind of wanting to reckon with why all these classical music institutions felt so politically bankrupt and just like sort of the entertainment structure for the 1% or something, I like, got more into political theory and more into organizing spaces and was really trying to like think about the relationship between performance practice and organizing for a more livable and just world. And, and so like, I really like stopped showing up in like those ensemble spaces that had been this like source of generative play for me as a kid. And sort of started seeing how they're also participating in really shitty political structures and all these kinds of things. And so I think the, the terrain of these like modes of assembly got like a lot more complicated and um, yeah. And so then, you know, fast forward like 20 years or whatever. And I um, now work as a, both like, a musician and experimental performance maker and as like a scholar and writer and and yeah I ended up writing this book that was like really trying to you know thanks for reading that um engagement with the book by um Jack Halberstam it was nice to hear that language read and like think about this project in different ways I think like yeah like these sort of biographical experiences brought me to this train of like, how do we give an account of the, um, both the need and the effervescence and the desire for, and the possibility and potentiality in like gathering with people in new ways to try to make a different relation to the world. And also then the frustrations of those attempts, when those attempts get co-opted into something else, when those attempts fail, when those attempts um, never quite happen, you know, like um, how do we give an account of like the attempt to gather in a new way in different historical moments that 
is actually pays attention to that full range that doesn't just idealize or critique, but actually tries to grapple with the failures inside the attempt at something more ideal and all these things. So, um, yeah, that's sort of how, I don't know, that's where I'm at with the book now. And yeah, I think there's like parts of my like practice as a musician that is like, and as a, as like a, um, person in the world that have like brought me into that ambivalence I don't know that was a bunch of rambles but maybe maybe helpful or interesting I don't know um thank you for that that was a really interesting and compelling bunch of rambles (laughs) to me um and I think leads in really beautifully to sort of where I wanted to take our conversation next which was to ask you about um a two things kind of a particular piece of work that I've read about that you made mm-hmm. um, and also some ways that you sort of spoke about the, the circumstances in which that was presented. So I'm going to read um, just like a little, a little quote. First, I'll, I'll just sort of let me locate us and what I'm talking about. So in 2018, uh, this piece that you made called Coral Marks, mm-hmm. um, which was a musical, adaptation of Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto, if I understand correctly, um, was presented at the NYU Skirball Center for the Performing Arts. And I was reading a review of that um, by J.W. McCormick in The Nation. And so I'm just going to quote that for a moment. Quote, there's also the obvious fact, which Philbrook was quick to acknowledge, that we're talking about NYU, one of the biggest developers in the city. This either ironizes the Marxist underpinnings of the piece, bites the hand that feeds it, or both, depending on your mileage. Quote, staging antagonisms, unquote, is how Philbrook puts it, the effect of singing history in the midst of institutional power. Quote, The piece for me isn't trying to solve these contradictions, but I hope it energizes and disrupts the power power structures that inform it, unquote. Um, And I was really excited by that little detail that that was brought into this conversation. And I'm wondering, because without getting into things about my personal practice, I'm interested in um, in this kind of challenge of making work that is either confronting or disrupting the circumstances that enable it to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm wondering if you can talk about making work that is inherently disruptive to the institutions Mm -hmm. and contracts that have enabled your research to make that work. And you can, and that can be within the context of this particular piece or other things, if that feels like a better Mm -hmm. way to approach it. No, totally. Um, Cool. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean like, I don't know, I'll say this in like really sort of banal practical terms or something, you know, like that piece, you know, I was like thinking about contemporary legacies of Marxism, thinking about, you know, how 19th century articulations of anti-capitalism still speak to the present and also don't, you know, like what, what ways do we want to like engage and also push on Marx and Engels, both like analysis and activist practice. And um, so I was just wanting to like grapple with that and thought it would be interesting to maybe grapple with that musically 
And that whole project actually started as like a Marxist reading group. I was like one summer wanting to read a lot of like the more activist texts by Marx and Engels. And so I like had a reading group and then we were like reading things out loud to each other. And then at the end of the night, I would like come up with like a little song for like a quotation and we'd like sing it together as a way to try to remember it. And then I was like, oh, there's going to be something interesting about like trying to memorize through song Marx in the present and you know like and and it's it's weird and it's anachronistic and it works and it doesn't and you know like maybe there's a project here and so then i started like writing this music and then it eventually became this like evening length choral piece and like and became a choral piece that was produced by and like supported by and commissioned really i mean not really commissioned but like you know given some funds by the NYU Skirball Center for the Arts, which, you know, like, so like clearly, you know, like, I mean, like a progressively curated cultural institution, but not by any means a leftist institution, you know, NYU is, you know, a college that, or no, it's, it's a, it's, I forget who said, this is somebody else's phrase about this, but like describing NYU as a real estate developer that happens to be a college too, or something. Um, But whatever. So like, you know, like there would be a more sort of like at all stages um, maintaining its integrity relation to writing a leftist choral work, which is that like you present that choral work at a counter institution that that is integrated with, you know, like leftist politics and is... um, not about, you know, displacing all remnants of livable downtown New York life, you know, like that NYU is, you know, like there would be like a very clear, like, yeah, like keeping, you know, this, a project that's really invested in, um, you know, ways of leftist ways of occupying space and aesthetics and things like that. And so that would be like a very clear, like way to go with a project like this. Um, and there were parts of this that I was going in that way, but then I got this ask from NYU and I was like, okay, uh, what if I, you know, not just keep this, this like thing that feels more socially engaged, but what if I take these resources, write this piece, perform this piece there. And so instead of it being this space to like sort of practice this more ideal way, I just like, it becomes this place to just like really articulate and sing through and make happen all these contradictions and webs of complicity between like performance practice, artistic practice, social critique, institutions that support critical practices, you know, like, and just like really sing our way through those contradictions and see what can happen, see what doesn't happen. And so that's the way I ended up doing because the money was offered and the resources were offered. And so we made this performance that like took place on the Skirball stage, but then also, you know, we were singing about anti-capitalist critiques from the 19th century, or not about singing actually like anti-capitalist critiques from the 19th century. So it was really weird and it, and it remained sort of like unresolved, I thought, you know, like, and that was sort of the thing. And this, I mean, it, it brings us to like really big questions about the sort of like institutionalization of critical practices. And, you know, this is like the sort of question of the avant-garde is like, you know, like what does it mean for institutions to like support 
practices that critique them as institutions? And does that become this really sort of nihilistic zone of like all critical practices are absorbable and there's no space of otherwise, you know, like, but I think I was interested for that one to like do this piece that sort of like jumps right into those those impasses and those like broader historical dynamics and modes of institutional absorption under neoliberalism and like try to make this piece that's like, it was also like a really like fun and beautiful piece of music that was just like, I thought maybe might work in excess of those contradictions while also staying inside those ex- contradictions. And so I don't know. I think it did something interesting, but it was not like, it didn't dismantle NYU as an institution. It didn't solve the crisis of capitalism. It didn't like organize a new world. It didn't do it. It it more just like was this sort of little duration inside of those contradictions to maybe feel some other things together and then be able to talk about it, you know? So like, yeah, it was like, it's like a project in some ways I think about very, with like very humble design. Like it wasn't trying to do a lot, even if it was, about trying to do a lot or something? I don't know. Um, yes, yes. Uh, I was just thinking that I really appreciate how centrally uh, like contradiction and ambivalence yeah. seem to be, which I think is just real, right? In the yeah. way that you can be anti-capitalist and acknowledge that we still have to make money in order to not die. Um, uh-huh. And even that uh, in, in this society in which we are right now, um, and it made me think about um, uh, what you brought up in the workshop about how when you would um, tell people you were writing a book about groups, people mm-hmm. would say, oh, that's so radical. Oh, you know, um, when in actuality, a group denotes nothing, you know, other than like a collective of people. Um, and so I, I'm really curious about... Um, why you think that, especially like in American culture, we sort of have this view of anything held in common to be radical, mm-hmm. um, whether it's like resources or bodies, mm-hmm. um, and and how that view could actually maybe limit or distort or like create a false binary mm-hmm. around the collective structures. Mm-hmm. Totally. Well, I think, I mean, I think you're already saying it in really great terms. <laughs> so I'll probably just sort of repeat what you're saying. But like, no, I think that's, yeah, I think... I mean, part of it is that sort of the inheritance of liberalism and as it's been sort of morphed into, you know, what gets called neoliberalisms through the 1970s into today, like, is like such an intense mythology of the individual and the, you know, the entire juridical scene being cast as like a sort of scene of individual responsibility and this like these phantasms of like man and you know like um whatever all these things like there is like this broader sense that um you know anything that steps out from the figure of the individual must be some kind of radical answer to all those discourses and i think you know like there's like I mean, you know, sure, like, sure, there's something there and like a sort of critique of privatization and, and, and the figure of the individual is like, you know, like, in some ways, like, yes, for sure. But I think what that doesn't bring us towards is like, how, you know, 
part of how sort of neoliberalism has has morphed through since 1970s is at, through like an incorporate incorporation of modes of critique of it um and so and one of the ways that this like happened is like through proliferations of like sort of um group modes of exploitation and other kinds of things so like yeah like i think like it's for me it really struck me as i was starting to do this research into into like group aesthetics and group formation that like um you know in the book i call it sort of the romance of the more than one that like that just like a sort of like investment in grouping itself isn't necessarily a radical gesture in fact it can be like it's it's what sort of the terms of exploitation ask us for now more than ever and so um you know, I was reading a lot of stuff about like ensemble practice or groups or collaboration. And it was all sort of like being like, we're doing the good work, you know, like we're, we're trying, you know, like, and this is the thing. And always to me, I was like, okay, but like, this doesn't actually seem like it's holding the historical antagonisms of the present, like actually, you know, like it's, um, and so I think, yeah, I was like, we can't just stop there. It has to be, it like matters. You know, this is a phrase from the book. It's like, um, you know, the, the like grouping itself isn't enough. It matters the how and to what ends, like the means and ends actually like matter. And so, and so then, yeah, that's like becomes the ground for then the analysis of these artistic practices of like, yeah, it's not, it's not like, these artistic practices aren't cool and interesting just because they're grouping. Mm. They're cool and interesting because, you know, like, yes, they're like working with collective formations, but they're cool and interesting because how they're, you know, articulating and disarticulating all of these other discourses within the present, you know, like all these other discourses around racialization, all these other discourses around histories of patriarchy and, you know, you know, all these other kinds of things. So, yeah, no, I think like, yeah, the sort of like, the romance of the more than one isn't enough. It's like, that's just actually a starting place, not the ending place for analysis. Right. Yeah. It really sort of shows you how, um, how close to the start we still are, like how sort of basic our conception of these things still are. Like like speaking about American society. And it's almost like um, this idea of, Oh, we we're moving away from the individual into the group. The group must be better because it is our natural way of being. It's almost this sort of like essentialist reading of like natural. It must be good. Yeah. Really harmful in lots of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. No, and I think like, yeah, there's like this, like this comes to sort of like the, the sense of period in the group, you know, like I'm like looking at, in, sorry, the period in the book, in the book, like I, like in the book, I'm like really like looking at these artistic projects from the sixties and seventies and then pairing them with, you know, artistic projects from the last 10 years also invested in group formation. And, and I think there's like a real, like, um, yeah, like part of the like question of the historical ruptures that occur in the sixties and seventies is really like alive in the book. And clearly this sort of like one of the founding gestures of the book. And, 
and part of that sort of moment, you know, sort of like, you know, think if we want to like name it as 1968 and it's after lives or something, you know, part of the reckoning with that moment is like to think about like some of those like sort of moments of those flashpoints of like collective energy or moments of like riot and revolt and, or like sort of countercultural possibility or new ways of gathering or, you know, like that we associate with like around the years around 1968 Mm -hmm. people reckoning with sort of what those moments delivered or didn't, or what the afterlives of those moments of like radical possibility were or how they cooled down or how they got incorporated or how they got absorbed or how people got burnt out and slipped back into normative ways of being or whatever, like, like that sort of thinking about sort of flashpoints around 1968 and their absorption is like, you know, it's like, cause part of what people think about in that moment is like, yeah, it was these moments of like radical collectivity that then oftentimes got sort of like that like cooled down into some other sort of like rearticulation of the norm or something. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so I think like part of this like strain of thinking about this is also like thinking about, I don't know, there's like a interesting way to like frame actually the whole book as sort of like a reckoning with the, the sixties still or something like reckoning with these moments of like sort of radical organizing and what they deliver and don't or how to show up in a scene after it becomes not possible anymore you know like all these kinds of things like yeah there's like because because part of what I was writing alongside and and thinking about these questions is some like theorists who are really like theorists of the afterlives of the 60s like what Mm. what did these moments of um revolt and organizing offer and not, you know, things like that. I think something that's coming coming up for me as I'm listening to you talk about that is, you know, in this time, how so many of these um, like reimaginings of gathering and being together mm. were made visible by the physical engagement of people in ways that maybe before had not been visible. Mm. Um, and you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about that in relationship to, to the first chapter of your book, where you describe this score huddle that we, um, as a grad cohort read and and worked with a little bit in our workshop with you. Um, and, you know, looking at the ways in, in in that particular score, these different relational dynamics Mm -hmm. are built into how dancers are instructed to be in physical relation, changing physical relationship with one another through time. Mm -hmm. And that through embodying those changes and having to allow the strategies for those changes to emerge from the circumstances of every given moment Mm -hmm. um, as being a context to both practice these ways of being in relationship, but also for that to become visible for spectators, right? And so then there's this um, kind of way of this thing being taken out of the theoretical and into both the like embodied embodied ways for, for multiple people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious how you came upon that score, you know, coming from a background in, in music, as you described, mm-hmm. like where did movement and embodiment enter your research and how did how did your relationship to to that as a factor in this understanding of group dynamics 
change through working with that particular score. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, like biographically, like in that moment I described earlier of like turning 18 and being in classical music world and being like, fuck this place, like burn it all down, screw these institutions. What am I doing? Um, I like went towards more experimental dance scene at that time. I think there was like, there felt like partly it was like wanting to, um, yeah, there just felt something like sort of really exciting to me about like, maybe it was like, it was just like really sort of personal stuff of like, I had been an instrumentalist so long and been so focused on like bringing myself to like play this other instrument that I was like really wanting to like be present with like the ground of my body itself and like, and like see what my body could do in relationship to others, like not just like in relationship to an instrument or something. But, um, but yeah, so I really like got into like dance worlds. And even as I like came back to music, came back to like playing the cello, it was always like actually in closer relationship to experimental dance and, and um, contemporary dance. So, um, so it's partly just biographical. I like really got into sort of that scene and in terms of friendship and collaborators and things like that. And so I was like encountering the history of, um, you know, postmodern dance in New York and Judson church scene and, um, you know, really getting in that modality and very curious about like, you know, then like sort of overlapping spaces of experimentation in New York of like, fluxus movements and how both Judson and fluxus were engaging with scores and instruction scores that were like in relationship to everyday capacities and you know like and so I was just sort of in that zone thinking and working and um yeah and experienced I think actually some of my first I was like I was just like yeah, I was maybe like reading about Judson, saw something about Simone Forti. And then somebody passed me um, a PDF of Simone Forti's um, like memoir slash art book from the um, mid 70s called Handbook in Motion. Um, and I was at this residency in like 2013 or something and just like had this PDF with me and started reading it. And actually just really... Yeah, I really loved it as a text. It's a really beautiful book. It has like scores. It has documentation of performances of her dance constructions from the early 60s. It also has like a lot of drawings and journal entries. And it has some essays about um, the 60s and and her practices. And, and interestingly, it, it really turns on some of like her experiences of like hippie communes and her experiences at Woodstock and her like um, leaving like this commune at one point to like, like, like it has her like more actually like ambivalent relation to some of those like countercultural hippie movements of the late sixties. And she like talks about like being in a commune, but like spending all of her time, like off in the field, just walking in a circle, like thinking about the nature of movement and stuff. And like, and, or she like has this like analysis of like, yeah, these communes are great, but like, the people who are like sort of running them are always these like kids who actually have trust funds. I'm summarizing it in a different way, but like actually just have like trust funds and like bought some land somewhere and everyone's crashing here. This isn't like actually necessarily like an attempt to like 
confront the economic systems of degradation that are ruining the planet. You know, like she just like has this more like complicated relationship to some of the countercultural movements of that time, specifically the sort of like white led trust fund kid countercultural like hippie movements at that time, you know, like, so she's like, so I was really curious about her. And then this score for huddle just like for me, like became this really interesting articulation of some of those like questions of like trying to form groups, but like also being with the like antagonisms inside of a group, you know, cause it's this score for a group of people to push together um, and climb each other and then come and reform the group. And so it's this like space of like sort of pushing together, gathering, but it's not like a, um, like celebratory space of gathering, you know, it's not a circle dance of holding hands and, and dancing around the fire. It's like this more agonistic, like pushing and climbing. And there's like a kind of horizontality and headlessness to it, but there's still this sort of like ascending and descending being on top being below. And so it felt to me that this more just like, complicated collective structure to like meditate on and so I just got like sort of obsessed and then I you know I'm from the school of thought that like when you have an obsession with an aesthetic form it means you should think about it and write about it and tease out and so it became the sort of ground for some writing that eventually made its way into this book and so um yeah I think like and there is this like in terms of the sort of like why this bodily practice or like what does that do I think like yeah, like thinking about movement scores, not as like, or like, I think it's like, we have to like, a movement score can be a kind of practice for a new way of being in the world. Mm. But it is not necessarily the doing of the alternative way of being in the world. You know, like we have to like reckon with the complicated sort of bracketedness of it being a movement score and it being thought of in terms of artistic practice and it being sort of like already held within art making while at the same time, maybe if you practice huddle, you are kind of trying to like rehearse a different way of showing up in the world that could sort of uh, like radiate out towards, you know, how you show up in an organizing meeting or, you know, it could be a kind of rehearsal for what it means to like organize your building or, you know, like, I don't know, like all these other kinds of things, but it's not like the same as that, you know, like, and I think that's the place you have to sort of, um, actually go really slowly when you're thinking about the relationship between sort of experimental art practice and experimental political practice is that they might like resonate and sort of um, vibrate alongside each other and sort of feed each other, but they're also then really different and have really different stakes and really different claims in the world and get evaluated in really different ways. And so that was sort of what I was trying to do in that writing about Huddle is like, I'm gonna think about this score as an aesthetic practice, as a choreographic score, a sort of kinesthetic sculpture. And I'm going to then think about how it sort of rubs up against sort of organizing spaces and modes of like community organizing or, or like leftist activist space and think about how they might sort of like articulate each other, but also in a kind of unfitting, like, alongsideness or something and so and so yeah I do this like like a choreographic score is a way to like practice a different kind of relationality and yet it's not you know it's not the same as gathering for the sake of 
organizing a mutual aid structure so that like somebody, you know, like the world is more explicitly livable for people the world is not built for, you know, like, like it's like, like how to actually think carefully about those relationships. And I think like dance because of its like materiality, like puts us right inside the thick of those like overlaps and disjunctures. Yeah. Yeah. I think that also, you know, it says I'm listening to you and I'm just thinking about my own experience with movement and also with relationality and in, in organizing spaces is like, there's a state of attention that emerges when you're physically engaging in a score like this, um, that sort of be- makes a particular way of listening and attending to surroundings and other people's influence um, heightened. Yeah. That feels, that feels like it, it, that's, that's perhaps like, one of the threads that moves between these two things is this particular like way of attending um way both way of attending and then also like value the value of that of attending you know in those ways yeah um so that's just coming up for me but i feel like i don't want to step on your toes frank because i know you were going to have another question after this oh yeah i mean i i think (laughs) um, coming out of everything that you just said ethan um the the relation between the two things the movement score and then the doing of the political action or whatever yeah and one um way of those two things relating that i have been thinking about you talk in your chapter about when you did the score mm-hmm. with 40 and there was maybe a group expectation that there would be like a little bit more hand holding or like preparation right. Right. or you know something and then she was just like go get them um yeah. and i'm really curious about how that sort of like lack of preciousness uh-huh. can what implications it has for um, being able to act mm-hmm. politically in um, you know whatever sort of arena but I think especially in this time yeah. we are really disconnected from our bodies and each other in all sorts of ways right. um, and I had seen this um, post from a um, someone organizing against the mountain Valley pipeline and they had like made themselves to a piece of um, a piece of machinery and it had, you know, delayed the construction for six hours. And the caption was like, you don't have to wait for anyone to act. You can literally just do it. Mm -hmm. And I think many things are in the way of that. And so I'm wondering about being sort of like thrown into the score where, where you're immediately run into navigation and negotiation. What implications has? Totally. Well, I think, no, I think you're both like, Articulating actually, yeah, these are the, the interesting zones of resonance actually across, like between these sort of like spaces of artistic and political experimentation. It's really, I love what you're both saying. And I think, yeah, like, yeah, Frank, what I think that's bringing me to is like, yeah, it's like both, you know, it's like, it's like these like techniques for improvisation, you know, it's like, and how to like take very seriously what we mean when we say improvisation and like to think about, you know, we talk about improvisation in, in, aesthetic modes but like what about like sort of social and political improvisation Mm. and like and so yeah that maybe one thing you get to sort of practice inside of a movement score like this is sort of like your improvisational capacities and that what does that do to sort of enliven your capacity to improvise politically socially and you know like and no and I think yeah I think like that like I don't know, I'm reminded of um, uh, the social theorist and literary theorist Lauren Berlant, their posthumously published book on the inconvenience of other people, um, and there's this chapter in that that's about like infrastructure, and and like sort of crises of infrastructure, you know, as one of the sort of like 
terrains of our contemporary moment and and sort of like the deathly stages of capitalism we're in and and what they end up like sort of moving towards is like these artistic practices that are about kind of like improvised collective infrastructures like not actually necessarily like addressing you know like a broader thing about like transportation or water even though you know like that's what these like activist scenes are trying to do but like but these like aesthetic practices that are about sort of like how do we sort of improvise infrastructures of care with each other and that that is maybe something that like happens inside an experimental dance studio that could you know give us tools for thinking about how that might happen inside of a movement you know like and that like inside movements we can practice the capacity for movement or something you know like I'm like yeah so I feel like that is you know these questions of improvisation and improvising infrastructures and you know like that is like really alive and I think yeah like something that is in you know my attention to the 14 you know this huddle is like a space to like practice improvisation and I, I don't know I'm reminded of one other scene where there's um and this is a different political moment um but it's like there's this um there's a wonderful documentary about act up as an activist formation and and thinking about you know like that is an incredible document of organizing in relationship to governmental neglect around hiv aids epidemic and specifically the sort of like i think it's really sort of like 87 through 92 period of act up um and it's um, anyway, Jim Hubbard, and it's called United in Anger, and it's available on YouTube if you want to watch it. But um, but in that, there's this really wonderful footage of ACT UP doing, like, trainings for civil disobedience, where they're, like, learning these choreographic moves of, like, how to become small groups that can't be moved as easily by the police. And they're, like, practicing movements for us that are actually sort of that like resonate alongside huddle in some ways. They're like, they're doing these sort of linkings of arms and circular formations that can like, so that they can sort of be slack and unmovable together and finding sort of stronger ways to like link an arm so that they like can't be moved. And then they're doing these small formations so that like, it's not just a whole group that could be penned in and arrested, but they have to like, the police will have to go group by group. And, you know, and so there's like, like thinking about the sort of movement training of civil disobedience and last sort of citation this brings me to is there's a really wonderful book by Danielle Goldman about improvisation in movement and in, in movement practices and contemporary dance and in social movements. And she has this chapter about sort of contact improvisation in relation to um, um, civil rights protests and, and like the capacity to sort of give way release way and how they're like sort of how these were happening simultaneously and sometimes articulated with each other sometimes not in a really complicated way but her writing about that I find also really inspirational and was sort of def- I, mean, I mean yeah definitely like the conditions of possibility for some of my thinking about huddle too so yeah I don't know those are just some, some so much there <laughs> I think we're getting towards the end of our time um, but we had a a couple questions that I wonder if maybe we could give you sort of like a rapid fire, quick response option to um, just give us a, a little quick, quick something to, yeah. to leave us with these. Yeah. Um, and so the first one is like, where is all this taking you next? What's next? Um, what's next? I like, 
or what's now? Yeah, what's well, now? I what's now next? Next now. Um, <laughs> I'm um, working on like some performance projects that are you know always about showing up with others in different ways. You know, like I have like I have a band project that I work on. I have like various collaborative endeavors with different artists. So like you know, some of this thinking is definitely like also then provides the conditions for me to try to make things in relationality in different ways. Um, and then I, in terms of writing, I'm like, right now I'm like writing a lot about um, what an instrument is and mm. new ways about like what we mean when we say an instrument, what is its sort of objecthood status? What is its technological status? And um, yeah, and so I'm thinking a lot about instruments and instrumentality and things like that. I don't know. We'll see. It's this book came out recently. I'm also like, I'm, I love teaching and I'm teaching a lot right now. And so there's not really much time for other things. So most of what I'm doing is like more improvised stuff in the classroom. I don't like foresee having enough time to really write for a while. Um, and the last, last cue is um, what do you need right now in order to be fully present in your practice? Hmm. Hmm. That's a cool question. Nikki's question. (laughs) I got it. I mean, I will, I don't, I I got it from another podcast and I, I'm not exactly sure. It might've been how to survive the end of the world with Adrian Marie. Oh yeah. 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 I think that's where I got it, but it's a great question. So I'm glad you're into it. Totally. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I think like, you know, it's really basic shit, but like space and time and friendship, you know, like, spaces to gather, time to be together without a need to produce, you know, like without a need for productivity and the informal ongoing improvisation of friendship, like inside with those means, you know, we get to, to make on all the levels, you know, that's, yeah, that's all I need. That's really nice. I'm over here silent snapping because this audio is recording, but I'm just <laughs> really enthusiastically. Yeah. Um, Ethan, thank you so much for sharing uh, yourself and your time with us. This has been a totally thrilling conversation and um, we're, we're really excited to be encountering you in your work. Yeah, I'm so glad to meet you both and also your whole cohort. I loved getting to know you and how you're, working together and making and um, within your MFA program, it's like really, it's really wonderful and thrilling for me. And I'm like really grateful to be read and to be in conversation and, um, and yeah, really, I really um, very excited by this whole conversation. Yay. Thank you again. And I think, I think we'll leave it there and look forward to the next time that paths cross and we get to encounter you and your work. Cool. Cool. Yeah, same. Thanks so much. The Performance Lab podcast was brought to you by Contemporary Performance Network. In association with the Sarah Lawrence College Theater MFA program. For more information, please visit our websites at www.contemporaryperformance.com or www.slctheater.com. Thank you.